five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. On July 1st, Australia's National Space Agency started operations. It's an important milestone for the country, as they look to space to help drive economic growth with an eye to tripling their share of the global space market by 2030. My guests today are Kirby Eichen and Bill Barrett of Sydney-based Asia-Pacific Aerospace Consultants. Kirby is the Managing Director of APAC, while Bill is Senior Vice President. Both have extensive experience working in the industry and have worked with Australia's government over the years to promote and grow its space industry. Kirby also serves as the Chairman of the Board of the National Space Society. Both Kirby and Bill provide insight as to how Australia lost its space agency in the late 90s for economic reasons, only to see it rebooted now for economic reasons. It turns out Australia's space industry is stronger than even the government realized. And now, with bipartisan support, the country is charting a new course to take advantage of Australia's strengths. Welcome, Kirby and Bill, to the SpaceQ podcast. Oh, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure for us to be here. Yes, Mark. Thanks very much for having us on. So before we start, before we start talking about Australia's space program and the new National Space Agency, could you tell our audience how you're involved and what your company is doing? Well, Asia-Pacific Aerospace Consultants is, uh, as the title suggests, a consultancy around principally the space industry and telecommunications. Uh, we like to think that our, uh, our specialty is where technology and business kind of come together and seeing commercial space business and telecommunications businesses being successful. Uh, we have played a long-term role in the actual evolution and development of the Australian space industry. Both Bill and I were founders of what was the Australian Space Industry Chamber of Commerce, which changed its name to the Space Industry Association of Australia. That celebrated its 25th anniversary last year. So Bill and I have been involved in promoting the interests of the Australian space industry for a very long time. Uh, I'm also the chairman of the National Space Society in Washington, so I've had an interest in the global perspectives of space, as has Bill as well, and so we tend to combine a view of assisting Australian industry, but also helping it find its place in the global scene. Yeah, and I've been a space tragic from way back, having started building um, telecommunication satellites with the old Hughes aircraft in Los Angeles back in the um, in the 80s and was hired down to Australia to win a ground station network, for the Intelsat ground station network for Australia, which I was successful at doing, and managed the, um, the ESA facilities and provided the comms links back for NASA to JPL for the uh, Tidbimbilla uh, Deep Space Network station down here in Australia. And moved on to a, a wide number of other things, including uh, working with Kirby on the uh, at GAO Space, which was one of the top ten uh, space insurers in the world. Um, we also worked at the Asia-Pacific Space Center, um, which was the venture 
trying to build a spaceport on Christmas Island, uh, the Australian territory of Christmas Island, south of Java. To uh, we had the rights to the Soyuz rocket, and we're going to put an expended second stage, make it the Aurora rocket, and lift five and a half tons to geostationary orbit. So, unfortunately, we never raised as a commercial venture sufficient funds to uh, complete that task. And after that, we um, acquired um, Asia Pacific Aerospace Consultants which had been formed in 1994 by the former head of the Australian um, Space Office. And when he retired, he sold the business to us. And so um, we've been running that ever since. So just over two weeks ago on July 1st, Australia's National Space Agency became operational. This must have been an exciting time for the Australian space community. Can you tell us what led to its creation, what the process was? Well, you're certainly right that it was an exciting time for the Australian space industry and if you had been at the International Astronautical Congress in Adelaide last September when it was announced, it was quite an extraordinary reaction from the audience, which I think even surprised the uh, the minister himself who was making the tentative announcement. But um, it has been a very, very long time in coming and arguably uh, is well beyond when it was needed most. But having said that, perhaps it's it's worth looking at a little bit of the, the history there. Yeah, I think one of the things to recognize for your listeners to understand is that Australia is the only country in the world that had a space agency and got rid of it. And then it is now resurrecting it. Now, the original Australian Space Agency started in 1987, Pretty much, I think it predates the Canadian Space Agency by one year, and uh, had a very successful run from '87 through '96. Unfortunately, it never really had the support of the two um, major parties in in government, and they never could see the uh, particular need. They sort of saw it as a bit of a black hole. Um, that just soaked up cash. And in spite of some significant successes, including building instruments that flew on the shuttle and uh, on European Space Agency satellites, uh, it was closed down largely for economic reasons. Now, since that time, the the space has changed dramatically, uh, including the... um, the the development of space it has exploded in the 21st century largely bringing space to the consumer public in many different ways and in that context we we ourselves but others in the community here have been very active trying to persuade government that look it's necessary to actually have an agency in the because nations play in space in a particular way and the collaboration in space typically goes through your government agency and then that filters down to the to the business community we have felt in australia that we've been outside of that loop simply because we didn't have an agency and that has been the genesis for uh, establishing an agency here to bring Australia back in from the cold into the modern space community in a, in a much more active way. In fact, I think uh, we do feel like we have played a very specific role in it because in the early uh, 2009 period, the government was looking to come up with a new space uh, policy and a new 
concept for Australia's space involvement and our company, Asia Pacific Aerospace Consultants, was engaged in 2010 and 11 to do studies on uh, space activities in Australia and its sort of economic relevance to Australia. Uh, those studies, though, were never made public. When we were engaged again in 2015, we undertook a deeper study of Australian space capabilities and where it fitted into global supply chains and what the opportunities were for Australia. And the government did make that uh, paper or the report available, and I think that was kind of the uh, the spur for them to set up the expert reference group, which examined the argument for a space agency and ultimately led to the formation of the space agency. Yeah, that study actually showed, come, came up with the headline numbers that you're hearing about the agency now, or sorry, about the Australian uh, space industry now, which includes, you know, annual revenues of three to four billion, somewhere between, um, somewhere around 10,000 people who actually have space as part of their daily job. And that really surprised a lot of the politicians and a, and a lot of the space community as well. And also the fact that Australia did have some very strong elements in space, in Earth observation, in satellite communications, in position navigation and timing. And as a result, there was a recognition that not only is this bigger than we thought, not only is it, um, you know, the, d does Australia have something to contribute there, but another key factor we, we uncovered with that is that every industry sector in the Australian economy uses space as part of its business in some way. And that, again, helped build the profile that, yes, this is something that we need to really look at for this country and see how we can develop it further. Now, those numbers are not insignificant, and it goes to show that, like you say, there was an existing space community and uh, that it was obviously uh, doing well and, and growing, uh, and those numbers aren't actually that far behind what Canada does. So now that you have this new National Space Agency, what does it mean for this, the space community in the country? Well, one of the key aspects. I think it's important for everybody to understand the early stages of this space agency are to set itself up. So at the moment, it's going through a recruiting process, getting staff on board to actually fill the various different positions. The first task of the agency will be to come up with a strategic plan, a charter for how it's actually going to move forward in the industry. Now, that will be guided by the expert review group, which was set up to and ultimately recommended to the government that an agency be formed. And, and so it will concentrate on areas of, uh, that Australia really has some expertise in and can play. But I stress that none of that, that is a work in progress at the moment. We don't really have any concrete examples other than the expert review group's uh, report is to the areas that Australia might want to uh, consider. And those include the major ones, such as satellite communications, Earth observation, and position navigation and timing, as well as space situational awareness, you know, monitoring of space debris, which is a growing problem. And Australia has some, some key um, uh, capabilities in that regard. So we're, we're, it's a wait and see aspect at the moment, but I guess one of the other things I would point out is that part of the genesis of why Australia has done this, 
Australia contributes about 1.8% of the global international economy in terms of GDP. However, its space activities only comprise about 0.8% of the uh, in, of the space revenues of $345 billion this year. And that discrepancy has been one of the arguments. It's like Australia could do more. We could raise our ability to that, uh, our capability in space, commensurate with the level that we contribute to the overall global economy. And that's one thing that the, um, that the agency has decided to try and achieve. And also, Marcus, uh, you asked the question, what does it mean for the space community? Uh, as Bill noted earlier, one of the key things is that there is an expectation uh, in the global uh, economy, space economy, that you have an opportunity to showcase your technology through government programs. And that is something that Australian companies have largely been bereft of. So having the opportunity for um, national programs and more importantly where Australia as a space agency can interact on international programs, that gives a, a doorway for Australian companies to, to get some experience and participate in international programs and develop some real, um, uh, real in-space experience that uh, other countries and other companies are not necessarily seeing, but yet we're expecting. Uh, I find it interesting that um, uh, at a time when Australia has recognized the need to have a national space agency to coordinate the efforts from a na national perspective, from nation to nation, um, so that uh, it can help grow the economy, to help industry move forward, um, and to, uh, as you say, uh, as one of its first priorities, to come up with a, uh, a strategic plan of how to, to go forward, uh, that here in Canada, uh, we have uh, almost the opposite problem, where we have... Uh, from an industry perspective, uh, apathy within government, uh, even though they are vocal about saying we support the Canadian uh, space sector um, and that uh, a long-term space plan or space strategy uh, is coming, um, which was supposed to arrive last year. Um, and we're seeing that funding is actually going down uh, for the civil space sector. Uh, it's quite interesting to see the, the how the dynamic is because Australia, if I remember correctly, uh, was using Canada as a, as a model of how you should perhaps structure your your space agency. And we seem to be going in, in two different directions, at least on the, the civil side of things, uh, although there are other aspects of the Canadian industry that are doing uh, quite well. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. Well, I think one of the intriguing things, and I, I made this comment earlier, that uh, having a space agency 10 or 15 or 20 years ago probably would have been more helpful than it is now. And the rationale there is, of course, that commercial space has taken off so dramatically uh, over recent years. And hence, if you look at the amount of money that has been allocated for the, for the space agency, uh, that is almost uh, matched by three simple Series A investments in space projects in Australia in the last year. So quite clearly, 
commercial uh, investment in space is taking off in Australia as it is globally. And hence, um, the role of the space agency is perhaps less significant now than it would have been 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. But having said that, there's no doubt that a space agency is still very relevant and important to Australia. So it is an interesting contrast that you point out. Yeah, I would also, to your comment, say that Australia has looked very much to Canada in in many ways as an example of what they might be able to do in space. I mean, both countries have a similar uh, landmass. They have a similar uh, population. Um, You know, they have similar problems in terms of that large geographic area that have to be dealt with in in um, in various different ways in terms of monitoring, in terms of access, et cetera, and and in terms of communication. So what Canada has done over the years in space has largely impressed Australia not the least of which is the fact that you are an associate member of the European Space Agency, which allows your companies to participate in European programs in various ways, or your contribution into ESA actually is returned to your industry through the Just Retour program of ESA. And that has been a, in our view, certainly viewing that from Australia, that has been a tremendous benefit for Canadian companies. It puts them on on the, um, well, the European stage, if not the international stage, through those programs. It provides them... um, great opportunities for that visibility for cooperation in some of those larger ventures, which Australian organizations have essentially been locked out of because there there was just no national body through which Australia could participate in those things. So that's one of the reasons why we in the Australian community have been so important or so um, so keen on getting Australia to establish an agency. So it does we do have a seat at the table and can can choose which of those things that we join in, and some of that will flow down to Australian companies. Um, it, part of it, though, I think, is you know back to your comment that things are perhaps going a little bit retrograde in the Canadian space community. At some level, it's a matter of positioning. Um, in Australia, after years in the wilderness where we had virtually nothing and had to bootstrap ourselves up with everything, getting a seat at the international table, having a little bit, very small, but a little bit of government money to allow us to engage is incredibly important for the industry. Canada has been doing that for years, and I think perhaps could take a view, a page out of our book. It's a matter of how you reframe the message. Part of what sold the agency here in Australia is the fact that Australia can contribute in many of the new areas that are coming in space. Big data analytics, robotics, um, space situational awareness, some of the, and and to some degree, the off-earth mining and and the, um, the actually, the utilization of space resources. Those are all areas that Canada absolutely is is well prepared to contribute in and has already been contributing in if you look at Canada arm in terms of the robotics side of things. So I think it's it's a question of, you know, perhaps reminding um, the, the public and the government that, look, there is a significant role that Canadian companies can play. And even though we've been doing this for a long time, there's a way to move forward with that as the space economy moves into different dimensions. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you on, on all of that. And I think the biggest thing from the Canadian civil perspective is that uh, um, it's time for a new strategic plan. And uh, everybody's uh, waiting on that and has been waiting for, for quite some time. So uh, in terms of um, the Australian space program as it exists now, uh, not including the creation of the Australian Space Agency, um, taken into you know taking into account the various players, um, you know what has been roughly a, a civilian budget, if you will, and uh, or the civil space budget, and, and who have been the major players, the major organizations that have been uh, part of uh, Australia's uh, efforts in the last uh, little while. Well, I think the use of the term program is one thing that is a little bit misleading in the sense that uh, up until now, uh, essentially all space activity has been conducted independently within different departments or organisations. So there wasn't so much that concept of an overarching program. Uh, having said that, there are some obvious uh, players in space, whether it's uh, Geosciences Australia, uh, Bureau of Meteorology, um, the various military organisations associated with it and each of them have been spending fairly considerable amounts of money. Uh, there's no kind of central um, place where you would see all of that budget uh, summed up. Yeah, I mean, one of the, um, I suppose to some people, little-known facts is that for example, the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organization in Australia, actually manages the, um, the NASA uh, Deep Space um, Communications Network Center at Tidbin Villa, just outside Canberra here in, in um, Australia. There are three of those centers around the globe for NASA. One of them is in Australia. Likewise, the European Space Agency has a similar deep space network for its uh, interplanetary probes, and there are three of those around the world, and again, one of those is in Australia, and that one's in, located in Western Australia, just outside Perth. So um, through those mechanisms, Australia has actually played a very active role in in the communication of deep space programs. Um, but again, that goes largely under the radar because that's a, um, a specific agreement between those organizations and, and the, the relevant, you know, between NASA and ESA. It is picked up in a government budget somewhere, but it's not, it's not that visible. Likewise, um, Geoscience Australia uh, handles most of the, um, the, well, it downlinks all the Landsat satellite data and also receives uh, imagery from, um, you know, some of the other providers like uh, some of the commercial providers like Spot Image, et cetera, uh, as well as various different um, other satellites from, operated by NOAA and ESA. Uh, and also, more increasingly, um, the Chinese satellites and the um, and the Japanese uh, Earth observation satellites. So, again, they've played a very active role in this region in providing that data for Australia. But again, it's buried down in a departmental silo somewhere, and it's not really seen as space by anybody except those those of us who really know those things and look at them. So there's a wide realm of space, and of course, uh, defense has had its own elements of, um, of space. You know, for instance, 
They actually have a communications payload on an Optus satellite. Uh, Defense has a um, another communications payload on an Intelsat sat- satellite that they paid for. They Defense has bought into the um, wideband global satcom system uh, run by the U.S., but we actually purchased, uh, the Australian Defense Force purchased the sixth satellite in that fleet to gain access to the entire um, spectrum worldwide. So there are some significant ways in which Australia has participated, but it has been um, almost in an ad hoc fashion. And that's one of the things that the agency will do is to bring a coordinating role. Not that it's actually going to stop what those those separate organizations are doing, but it will um, almost be a conduit to make the government aware that, look, we we are an active player in space. We have been for some time. You just need to recognize that this is the way we do it and to try and bring that coordination to a, a more public visibility in some ways. And so while you can't put, we can't put a simple number on it, I think it's quite clear that across the various uh, government departments and agencies and, and operations, it's, it's certainly hundreds of millions of dollars that's being spent. You know, one of the arguments we've made to government in you know, our advocacy for an, a, an agency is the fact that, look, the Australian government is probably the largest spender on space in the country. And yet it's, it's unknown. People haven't recognized you know, exactly how that's happened. And we've also noted that typically the, those purchases um, come from overseas. And hence, what would it take for the Australian government to refocus some of that purchasing power towards local organizations so that you know, Australian um, uh, industry can benefit from the, the government spend on space? Now, in Canada a few years ago, and what I'm going to allude to already existed before that, but this was to make things a little bit more, uh, to provide better, I suppose, uh, context, uh, the CSA uh, brought on a chief economist. Uh, And one of the things that uh, the CSA produces on an annual basis is a state of the Canadian space sector, which basically says this is how much, you know, was spent. This is uh, the revenue. This was domestic, gross, uh, sorry, domestic and and foreign. Um, Would that be something that uh, Australia will do is produce an annual report so that, like you said, you know, a lot of organizations were doing a lot of things and we had some numbers, but it wasn't a number that was consolidated. So we weren't quite sure until we actually went and did this study. So is that something that would happen on a, you know, perhaps yearly basis where you come up with a report and says, this is what happened in the last year from an economic perspective? Um, first of all, we're very familiar with the Canadian reports because we have used them, um, read them with great interest and used them in our, our some of the studies that we've put to the federal government here. In terms of a re- an annual report, Australia does produce a state of space report for um, which they provide into the UN organization, um, United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. So that they have been doing that maybe for the last five years, I think. Prior to that, there was a gap where uh, back in the old space agency days, they did provide that, then they stopped doing it. They have resurrected that. Having said that, the report is very basic. It just is a, a little update of anything they can think of that might be newsworthy to, to um 
essentially too private in that report. It has not gone down to the depth of what the Canadians do. And that is a potential, uh, a strong possibility. Whether the um, agency embraces that at this point is is unclear, but I think there are some merits to that, and and, um, it would certainly be useful information. Now, in terms of uh, one thing that you can't... um uh, ignore uh, because it's there <laughs> uh, for anything that happens with government is politics. Um, <laughs> with respect to creating the space agency, and I know in Canada when the Canadian Space Agency was created, there were a lot of politics, and a lot of the existing organizations were saying, "Well, you know, you can't cherry pick this, and you know, we don't want to give you that as part of this new space agency." I, how did it go? How did it go from a political perspective? Was it a relatively smooth process? And were the organizations that are going to be part of, uh, you know, the coordination process that us, the, the space agency will do? Uh, was there any friction? Is there I any friction? In, I think it's important to to view this as the space agency is adding uh, at the capacity or adding things that were not really present amongst the activities of the existing agencies or departments. So I don't think, as Bill mentioned earlier, there's really no intent that the space agency will take over uh, the roles of, say, Department of Defence or Geosciences or Bureau of Meteorology. Um, I think it is seen as looking at Australia's strengths, looking at areas where space could be of benefit to the nation outside of those existing government departments and activities. So from our perspective, there has been relatively little uh, bureaucratic fighting or or politics over uh, the space agency perhaps encroaching on their activities. And when you look at the scale of the budget, I think that also says that it's, it's undertaking activities that were not really present previously. So we've, there's probably not been that much bloodletting. Having said that, politics is often, as you rightly point out, is part, of the, part and parcel of, of these debates. And I, I suppose, from the, in an Australian perspective, it, it was under a um, previous... Uh, Labor government, and just for your viewers, in case they don't understand Australian politics that well, there are the two major parties are the Labor Party, um, which is more equivalent to the um, U.S. Democrats, and then the Liberal National Coalition, which is equivalent to the U.S. Republicans. Sorry, I can't directly translate to Canada because I'm not uh, as familiar with your political parties. But um, <laughs> no worries. When it, come, when it comes to that. Um, Neither party, it's fair to say that neither party had been um, very, had basically neither one of them saw space as much of a vote getter. And therefore, over the years, they simply did not do that. And in fact, the Liberal National Party basically saw it as a, um, as a white elephant. They were happy to host the testing that was done at Woomera back in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s, as long as somebody else paid for it. But as soon as Australia had to pay, for, pay something into it, uh, they decided, no, that was a bridge too far and, and uh, pulled the plug. What 
ultimately happened though is that in the the original space agency was under was formed under a labor government and uh, there was sniping from the sidelines a bit from the coalition side um and eventually when the coalition got in into power uh labor had had robbed the piggy bank a little bit um and and ultimately when an election came and the liberal nationals got into power um there wasn't any money there so they chose not to top it up and that's that was the end of the agency since then in the um under the uh labor rudd labor government they were very interested in in um the space side of things and and making some moves along those lines that was when they commissioned us to do our early reports, and they produced a thing called the Satellite Utilization Policy, which was mainly a roadmap for government to say, look, we do have an investment in space, and we need to do something along those lines. It it was um, – but they could not get bipartisan support to go much further, and so not a lot happened at that stage. However, it did set the scene, and – both parties now are very much on board that um, that there should be an agency and it should do things, um, you know, as set out in its charter and, and the uh, strategic plan that's being developed. So it does have bipartisan support in um, in uh, Canberra at the moment. Um, Labor has, you know, then of course there is the inevitable political point scoring where each side is now starting to say uh, maybe, well, Labor, who's in opposition at the moment, is sort of saying, well, we'll do more if we get in power. Um, you know, the uh, the Liberal Nationals are, you know, keeping their powder dry, saying, well, let's see what the uh, what the strategy comes up to be at this point. Having So I think the bottom line is there is general support. There's a general recognition. We have turned the corner with the debate that, most people now accept that there should be an agency to help us participate on the international stage in space. Um, then, you know, now they're fighting around the edges as just how much money that should be and, and the direction in which it should go. Now, when the uh, space agency was created on the 1st, the government issued a press release. In that press release, it said that uh, uh, it hopes to uh, triple the size of the industry by 2030 so that it's a 10 to $12 billion industry. Um, that's uh, 12 years from now. Um, is that a, a feasible goal? I, I think that this, the answer to that sort of goes back to the point that Bill made earlier with respect to the uh, percentage that Australia's space industry represents in the global space uh, economy, which is about 0.8% versus the 1.8% that the Australian economy overall contributes to the global economy. So, first of all, there's some natural room for growth there. I think, secondly, the the nature of the space industry has changed significantly with... uh, the move to uh, smaller spacecraft and the sort of ever-broadening realms of how small spacecraft can be used, that lowers the technology threshold. It also lowers the capital threshold. And so that is bringing space opportunity to Australia and Australian industry. So the industry in that dimension is moving in a way that Australia can play a bigger role. Uh, The other thing is in what I would term the new space economy, the likes of uh, space tourism, uh, space resource utilisation, 
Uh, if you take that latter, for example, Australia is arguably the number one country in the world for mining and resource extraction. So uh, there is a natural... Canadians uh, might attention. disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, Canadians probably would. So let's let's say we're one and two, and we'll we'll argue the toss about the order over a beer. <laughs> I think that was why I said arguably. <laughs> But um, but certainly there are areas like that and potentially future space tourism and as ultimately uh, the human settlement of space uh, unfolds, there is a natural opportunity again for Australian expertise, um, Australian ideas and by and large Australian technical capabilities and uh, uh, scientific expertise is on a world-class level. So, at that, from that perspective, there is also a great opportunity for Australia to grow its its industry. And the other one that I would mention, which again really came out of some of our studies, was that uh, Australian export of space services and products and capabilities only represents about roughly 10% of the revenues generated from space. So there, again, there is a kind of natural opportunity there uh, as barriers start to come down and as you move away from national government programs uh, being uh, the primary opportunity for international uh, engagement, as that moves to the commercial side, well, again, there's plenty of room for growth in the Australian industry there. And, and that particular issue, that uh, small nature of the export um, economy compared to the overall pie that Australia is generating in space revenue was one of the key arguments and, and one of the persuasive elements of uh, establishing the agency. So if you, if you were to just double or triple those exports alone, you would end up with uh, significant um, uh, movement towards that, that goal. Uh, admittedly, though, that is a stretch goal, but, you know, the, the expert review group report um, said we should really be trying to stretch ourselves in this industry in order to um, make headway for to make up for lost time, essentially. Now, the government budget included $260 million for satellite technology. Um, can you provide me some details on what that's going to be for and over what period of time that covers? Mark, I have to absolutely contemplate compliment you for your coverage of that because many people here in Australia do not even know that particular aspect of things. Um, most people just took the headline number of 41 million Australian for the space agency and they missed that particular part, which is one of the key elements of the whole thing. So the 260 million um, is broken down into three sections. One is... Um, uh, a space-based augmentation system for um, uh, for uh, GPS signals, GNSS signals. So in in North America, you have the WAS system, which provides augmentation for the GPS signals that enables was primarily spawned by commercial aviation to enable them to use. Um, uh, the augmentation signals to land on remote airstrips, so uh, something that's extremely important to Canada. 
Australia is one of the few places in the world that does not have that. So in Europe, you've got EGNOS, which is the equivalent of WAS in the U.S. You have um, another system in over India. You've got another system over Japan that cover bits of Asia. Australia and New Zealand were without that. And it was always decided that the civil, you know, by the civil aviation authorities were interested in that, but they could never close the budget case themselves for just aviation alone. And that's been a contentious argument down here for about 10 years now. Basically, the we were able to show, and when I say we, partly us, but also the general space community was able to show that there is a, a benefit beyond just aviation for this. It has increased productivity in agriculture, in mining, in various other primary industries that are critical. You know, the the actual the knowledge of position is really really important, and you can go to uh, much more efficient um, production methods in many cases. So the government actually is part of this package allocated $161 million to develop a space-based augmentation system over Australia and New Zealand. And that will then provide a lot of the benefits that people have been riding off in, in North America, in Europe, in Japan, in India, et cetera. The, so that's $161 million of that. The, then there is um, – Australia has done some groundbreaking work in Earth observation images. The uh, Geoscience Australian, which is a government department, has been receiving the Landsat data from the NOAA satellites for, gee, since 1979. And they have a, a wide, you know, time series of, of images of Australia that they have realized were not really of great use to anybody because of they did not, they weren't ortho-rectified, they didn't have the um, the detailed uh, cadaster elements, so you didn't know exactly where you were. You couldn't point to your farm. You couldn't point to your, um, you know, you know the, the township, etc. So what they have invested in over the years is, uh, recent years, is the thing called the Data Cube, where they have developed this software technology to actually bring all of those things in. So you, as the as a researcher or as a um, as an industry participant trying to develop a service do not have to have earth observation PhDs to actually extract the information you need from this data. It is a simple input query that you ask a certain thing and you can go in and the, the smarts, the algorithms inside it actually produce those images um, to your specifications. And, and that has basically, as they say, it has unlocked the Landsat archive, but also the other the archive of the other uh, Earth observation satellites that are here. So what the government has recognized is that this is actually world leading, and so they've allocated 61 million to improve that to a point where it can be exported. And they're already talking with many countries around the world about how to do that. As a as an adjunct to that, the um, also adjunct to the SBAS, they're they're allocating an, a, around forty million dollars for a um, GNSS augmentation network on the ground to um, allow uh, surveyors and uh, land mappers, etc., to um, to broaden that network. At the moment, you you've only got certain um, nodes of that. 
they're going to spread that more broadly across the country to allow, again, centimeter level accuracy with the SBAS and those that increased uh, ground station network. Now that's infrastructure. They decided to put that in the infrastructure side of the budget, even though it is all based on satellite technology. So um, well done for picking up that particular aspect, because I can tell you many people down here in Australia do not have any idea that that's actually happening. Yeah, well, that was a simple fact of <laughs> you're only spending $41 million to get the agency started, but you have $260 million for this. So uh, trying to understand what the dynamics were with that. So, And you've answered all those questions. Um, I, I think the important thing is the total spend in this year's budget was over $300 million for space. And that's the number that's not really often recognized. And I'm trying to do the math now to compare that to Canadian. That would be almost equivalent to what Canada is spending. But that doesn't include the the military side, which I, I don't think you'd be including the military side either in your number. No, no, it wouldn't. And, yeah. and it's also important to note that, that that money is to be allocated over four years, both for the agency and oh, for oh, okay. the... Okay, that's right, that's right. You're right, four um, years. So, I mean, so ultimately the $260 million that you've referred to is for three separate projects. Yeah. Definitely SBAS has a four-year time frame. The other two might be slightly shorter, like three years, but, but they were specific funds for specific projects. And I think that's an important point to make, too, is that while um, the agency itself is small in terms of $40 million, $41 million, um, $26 million of which is to set up the agency and staff it and run it, et cetera, there will be $15 million of that $41 that's available for individual projects, which is a very small item. But this shows, the $260 million shows that there is the potential for a well-conceived um, individual project to actually get funding. And the agency will be the um, avenue to go to to try and uh, win that funding through government. Now, let's switch a little bit from uh, government to industry with respect to specific companies. What what commercial companies should we be he- keeping an eye on? Um, you know, whether it's a traditional company that's been there for a while that looks like it's going to ramp up its activities, or some of the new space companies. Well, I think one of the most uh, significant things from an Australian perspective is the fact that we've had three space startups all receiving Series A funding in the last eighteen months or so. And that's, that's a very significant thing for a couple of different reasons. First of all, it was showing that the venture capital community was expressing interest in the space field in Australia. It was also significant that some of that venture capital funding came from overseas. And so we had, uh, first of all, a recognition there that international VCs were perceiving Australia as a, an economy that could support space businesses. So those three specific investments, the first one was Fleet Space, uh, an Internet of Things uh, space business that's located in Adelaide. They raised a $5 million Series A round, and then that was very quickly followed by another $5 million Series A round for Gilmore Space Technologies, Gilmore being a small uh, launch vehicle company uh, using hybrid technology based in Queensland and so immediately within sort of a few months of each other in early 2017 we had these two investments into space companies, one satellite related, one launch related, um, 
then uh, just earlier this year there was a 15 or 15 or 18 million dollar round I think it was 18 for uh, Miriota again in South Australia and another Internet of Things company and what was also very significant about that was that it was the very first international investment by Boeing uh, Boeing Horizon X Ventures I think uh, now that first international investment was followed fairly quickly by others around the world but uh, again it was very significant that an international aerospace company's venture arm was investing in an Australian company so those three companies are sort of clearly ones that are on the horizon um, both globally and in Australia it's also I think given tremendous um, encouragement to other companies that it is possible to raise money. Um, the, uh, as I sort of noted earlier, I think that there is growing awareness in the resource community about space resources. So it would not be surprising to see uh, developments on that front at some point. Um, and then, of course, I think there are a whole lot of more traditional space areas in Australia where we have expertise. Well, one thing to um, <clears throat> we should point out to your listeners that um, Mariota was actually uh, has Canadian roots in many ways. Um, we were doing some work for Comdev and uh, Exact Earth in the mid 2000s, and out of some of our research for them, we introduced them to people down here who were the the founders of Mariota, and we helped help them win a grant, the Australian Space Industry Research Grant, which was available at the time was successfully concluded and that was used as um, the seed funding by these guys to actually um, spin out Mariota. Um, so that, and I, you know, Exact Earth is, is still one of their investors. So um, yeah, there's a, there's, there's Australian Canadian connections in space that um, are looking to do big things. And uh, we'd like to see that continue <laughs> more prolifically. I think there's also, while we may not be able to point so much to specific companies, there are areas of technological expertise in Australia, such as uh, software development, where some of the original equipment manufacturers around the world uh, have design centres in Australia. Um, so there's, there's both the, the highlight companies, as we said, Miriota, Fleet Space, Gilmore Space, um, and there are others already uh, in the background we have, uh, interestingly, uh, a couple of companies that are attempting to establish launch facilities in Australia, not having their own launch vehicle, but providing the launch infrastructure as a managed service. So we have Southern Launch in South Australia that's proposing facilities, or not just proposing, but is developing facilities. And we have Equatorial Launch Australia in the Northern Territory, likewise proposing launch facilities as a service. Uh, and there are other launch startup companies. One, uh, Hypersonics, which is proposing a, uh, a reusable vehicle, both using the hypersonic technology, the scramjet technology developed at the University of Queensland, uh, blending that with a winged flyback booster. Uh, other companies like Space Ops in Sydney trying to develop um, small launch vehicles as well. So. There's been a bit of a flurry of um, new startups sort of coming out of the, the woodwork, and I'm sure we're going to see more of that, especially now that there is some commercial funds flowing. 
Now, yeah, a couple of. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Mark. No, no, finish your thought. Well, just on that, a couple of uh, as Kirby talked about technologies. There's a few other technologies to mention. He did mention hypersonics, and they're spinning out a um, uh, a scramjet vehicle. Another area that Australia really has strong um, uh, background in is space situational awareness. And in many cases, you've got many of the large primes, such as um, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, um, Talis, um, Airbus, all down here um, working with local research groups, um, spinning out technology, developing different types of technology. And that's very much the case with space situational awareness with an uh, Australian organization called Electro-Optic Systems, or EOS. They've been very active in that field for a long time. And um, there's some some really, they're doing uh, laser ranging of, um, uh, of space debris. They're now in a partnership with Lockheed Martin to develop some of these net, a network of this around the world to increase the observation profile. So that's something you might hear about um, in the years to come. Um, another area that Australia has really done some leading work in is um, small satellite propulsion or propulsion systems. So plasma thrusters um, are, are a big topic in the, um, the pocket rocket thruster developed by Australian National University. Now, again, those are in various different forms of um, getting um, investors together, um, developing that into a commercial realm. So uh, there's a a wide range of those types of things. And the other one I would say is that um, Australia as a a venue for um, um, operating satellites, providing TT&C, I mean, we control a large swath of the southern part of the of the world and um, we have direct visibility to the Indian Ocean region and the Pacific Ocean region so Australia is a natural home and has done this for many years providing TTC TTNC and operational support for satellites in this part of the world so um, and that's one of the things that the space agency has recognized and wants to promote further so there will be there are operational companies coming out of that that will provide services for people who need you know, some of these new constellations that are going up, there will be managed services in terms of Earth Station support for those down here in Australia. Now, I was familiar with a few of the companies that you've mentioned, including obviously Mariota because of the Canadian ties. Um, and of course, Gilmore, I've heard a bit of as well. Now, with respect to Gilmore, how far along are they? Have they got a, a relative time frame as to when they might do a, a first uh, test launch? They're planning a test launch uh, later this year, and I believe they have a sequence of launches planned into next year as well. Uh, Not exactly sure when they get to the uh, orbital realm, but they certainly have a sequential program which starts early, well, in the second half of this year, probably maybe September, October type time frame. But as I think everybody in this industry knows, there's no... uh, precise timelines you sort of get there when uh, when the technology all falls into place. Okay, uh, I have just a couple of questions left. Um, the first one, I read something interesting that Australia is reforming its space laws, uh, and in particular there was this uh, Space Activities Amendment Bill. Can you tell me a little bit about the bill and uh, has it or will it pass? 
I can certainly tell you about that um, more than you probably want to know because when just a little bit of history in 19 in the mid 1990s um, there were four launch proposals out of Australia and one of them was Kistler out of the United States one of the reasons Kistler went to Australia was because they were building a, re- a reusable vehicle and it was going to have to return it was going to have to fly back they realized that they would have difficulty getting uh, a license for that un- to return it to the United States until it ha- they had proven its technology a bit. So they came down to Australia as a as a, another spot to test it, and um, you know basically decided that it was you know started working forward with that. But then they asked the Australian government, "What should what are you going to make us do in order to launch?" The Australian government realized it didn't know, and so it came to their credit. They came to industry and they said. Um, Will you help us put together legislation that will um, cover us and and be supported by the industry? I was the appointment. I was nominated by industry as a liaison person. So I have lived and breathed this through its original um, incarnation, which was culminated in the um, Australian Space Activities Act of 1998. And then 20 years later, they decided, or 16 years later, 18 years later, they decided, look, it's, uh, space has changed a bit. Maybe we should move on. And they also found that regulating the thing, they did get some things wrong. It was a little bit clump, clumsy and awkward in some cases. And there was scope to streamline it. So as part of this renaissance of space here in Australia, two years ago, they decided that they would actually conduct a review of that act. They sought public submissions. And they have now then put together the legislation, which is before Parliament at the moment. The legislation does not, the upper level legislation does not do a whole lot or does not change a whole lot from the 1998 Act. It cleans up a few things. It adds a few things that they forgot previously, like um, launch um, from aircraft. Um, But largely, I, I would say about... They've changed a few names, but 75% of the document is essentially the same. It will pass. There's no question. They're doing a bit of a Senate review on it at the moment. Uh, submissions to that just closed last week. The, they will issue their report on the 13th of August, and then after that, we assume, and they did this for the 1998 Act, and they basically blessed it and said, yes, it should be passed. And then it was supported by both sides and passed. Both sides support this one. It will pass. Uh, there might be a few tweaks, but it will pass. The big issue, though, will be in the regulations that come under this. And that is where there's a lot of um, <clears throat> contention. Um, again, is there a way? The big issue is not so much contention, but can you streamline this in a way that makes it more supportive for industry? The government seems to be on board with that, um, at least in, in their intent. And so we'll, the, the, that will transpire over the next year. And so maybe we can have another chat. If your readers or listeners are interested in this, we can have another chat later on and we can fill you in on more of the detail there. You know, it's actually um, is quite interesting because from my, from what I'm understanding um, from when the review started to when the bill could pass, it's about three years. Am I right? 
that's pretty close to correct, yes. Right. So in Canada, we're in the process of uh, also looking at some of the, the, the regulations here, in particular the, the Remote Sensing Satellite uh, Systems Act. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting in that... F- that act which controls everything you know basic it's basically canada's outer space general law um uh went through a mandatory review five years ago or over five years ago and said it needed to be updated it went through a mandatory review a little over a year ago came out with basically the same recommendation that it needed to be updated with all sorts of other recommendations um the government has been slowly looking at it but um and this is it it came to a head because several companies were willing to invest in canada to build ground stations in uh the high arctic uh but they haven't been able to get licenses uh to actually operate the ground stations because of this slowdown in uh dealing with the law and um in talking to various people uh it could be several years before the actual law itself gets amended to deal with the actual current situation uh of the industry uh, to date so i think it's quite commendable that uh australia will have been able to do uh, an update uh within three years well let's let's put that in a little bit of perspective though the because the the two laws are not doing exactly the same thing. Um, the, Canada follows the U.S. system a little bit more than Australia does, where um, you do have a uh, an Earth observation law. I can't remember the, the the exact name that you put to it. Australia does not have that, so that effectively licenses you know the the ground stations that you can have for Earth imaging and um, you know effectively what you can look at and what you can't look at. Australia hasn't gone down that path. This particular Space Activities Act, um, or it, it's now rephrased into the Launches and Returns Act, um, only covers that, launches and returns. It doesn't deal with that uh, Earth observation side, and Australia doesn't particularly have a law for that. The Launches and Returns Act is simply to govern people who want to do launch from Australia or who procure a launch from overseas. And it, it ultimately it goes back to the UN treaties that govern space, which effectively said that anybody who launches or causes a launch is the launching state. And if anything goes wrong, they are liable in the international community for damages to third parties or injury to third parties. So what this Australian law is, is taking Australia's obligations under that um, international, those international treaties, and bringing it down to domestic law so that they can regulate their um, private corporations that want to play in that game. And ultimately, that issue comes down to, well, how much liability is the government willing to absorb on the behalf of private companies? And basically, the issue is, well, look, there's never, there's only ever been one um, uh, one time that the, li- the UN Liability Convention has been invoked, and that was with the Cosmos 954 uh, spraying its nuclear reactor over the Northwest Territories of Canada and Alberta back in um, 1979. Um, or oh, sorry, 1978. So it was, you know, that was the only time, and that was settled by Canada and uh, the Soviet Union outside the Liability Convention, anyway. But but it. So when you look at that's been the only ever. Um, claim 
under the liability convention. Um, you've got, you know, the argument for us is, well, really, Australia, how much risk are you taking? You know, can you lower that cap? And one of the things that the government demands in the legislation is that launch providers have a um, uh, takeout insurance coverage for liability. Originally, it was up to $750 million. They have revised that downwards to $100 million in this new act simply because it's not um, – there haven't been the claims and nobody's ever paid that kind of money out. So they've recognized that, well, yes, we can take a little bit more of that risk. Okay. Uh, I did realize that you were a part of uh, crafting the original bill. <laughs> so much so that when it was actually debated in Parliament, the uh, the Greens actually put forward a number of amendments that um, – I can't say I was part of crafting it, but I was advising the government at that stage. And when the Greens they put these these amendments, and they, I got a phone call saying, uh, this is what they're saying. Would you accept it? And if not, why would you not accept it? And so I you know, just answered the questions. And, and then the next day in Hansard, which is the official record of what was said in Parliament, there's the minister giving virtually word for word what I had said to them. So um, that was that was an interesting aspect of it. So yes, I we we can have a separate. If your readers are remotely interested in those arcane aspects of uh, outer space law, we can have a chat about that some other time, if you like. We, we I, might just I, do I don't that. know that you're going to get that many listeners, though. <laughs> I'd be surprised. All right, so uh, we've gone long as usual. Um, <laughs> I have one last question uh, that doesn't relate to uh, uh, our topic today, uh, and it's open to both of you. Uh, I always ask this of uh, my listeners, just so that uh, our, our, sorry, of my guests, so that our listeners can maybe uh, find a book that uh, they haven't read that would be of interest. So um, what books are you reading or have recently read that you would recommend? And it doesn't necessarily have to be space-related. Well, I'm going to leave this one to Bill because, unfortunately, I don't have time to read books anymore. <laughs> well, yes, actually, I've I've um, undertaken a bit of a um, – I'm an avid reader and um, read about all sorts of things. But for your readers on space, uh, there's a couple of them I've read recently. One, you know, I've been sort of fascinated with the Soviet space program, which was largely unknown about in the West. And there's a number of good books coming out uh, these days, some of which are not so new. But one I've just finished is um, called Korolev, who, which is the um, by James Harford. Um, he, of course, Korolev was the um, chief designer. The he, he was really the heart and soul of the Soviet space industry, and you know, put up Sputnik, put up their first um, reconnaissance satellites, um, and was you know the chief of the their N1 program to their their lunar program until his untimely death. So um, in 1966, um, you know, there are many arguments that perhaps he would have um, beaten the U.S. to the moon if um, had he lived. Uh, this book sort of casts some doubt on that, uh, given where the Soviet space program was at that stage, but highly recommend it. It gives a real insight into the, um, the Soviet space program. Um, another one that uh, your readers might find even more topical, perhaps, I've um, been reading the book on Elon Musk by Ashley Vance, and that 
you know, gives a real insight into Musk's thinking and, um, you know, how he put together SpaceX and how, you know, his bug for space, his passion for space and how he's moving forward with that. So, and then just as a, um, a, a um, you know, a tribute to um, the passing of an absolute luminary, I've um, picked up my very old copy of A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and uh, have reread that again in honor of his, uh, his passing this year. So um, <laughs> uh, it gives your readers a few, um, a few things to think about, um, should you like it. Um, actually, I will mention one other one. Um, which is off the topic of space, but um, certainly I like to keep track of what's going on in the modern world. And one of the more interesting ones I've really read in modern times was um, a book called A Very Expensive Poison, The Definitive Story of the Murder of Litvinenko and Russia's War with the West by Luke Harding. So... um, very topical with the Novichuk stuff in the UK at the moment. Uh, fascinating book. So um, I'll uh, let you uh, pick those up and read those, Mark, and we can chat about those next time. Well, I can say that uh, three of those books are, are on my bookshelf, except for the last one, and I've read two of them. Uh, I have Korolev, but I haven't actually read that one yet. So great choices. So I want to thank uh, Bill and Kirby for being my guests on today's podcast. It was fascinating uh, to get uh, some insights as to what's going on in Australia. I think it's very valuable uh, uh, to uh, to my listeners. Um, and I think, uh, you know, one of the uh, things that we're... Uh, see coming uh, out of Australia is more collaboration, which is uh, good for everybody. So thank you for again for being on the show, and hopefully I'll get you on the show again in the future. It's been our pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, definitely, Mark. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube Podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space, and if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.